Hello and welcome to the show in the second of a two-part series where we're going to learn how to sell, sell, sell. Although actually in this episode it's more like helping people to buy, buy, buy. But wait, isn't that the same? In a word, not really, but don't worry, all will become clear. Speaking of buying, this podcast is free, but if you'd want to show your support then there's a handy donate link on the podcast website onenightinproduct.com. All contributions are gratefully received and stop me putting tiresome ads all over the place. But even if you don't want to do that, I'd still love for you to come across, check out some of my other episodes, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you do that sort of thing, or join me on social media to make sure you never miss another episode again. So, that's the end of that sales pitch, but if you want to find out how to go beyond the challenger sale, and not just break the frame, but make a new one, keep listening to One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Brent Adamson. Brent's a renowned author, speaker and researcher, passionate about productive disruption and apparently has the biggest crystal ball in B2B sales. Before he started gazing into his seeing stone, he was a professor of German and applied linguistics at Michigan State, moving on to co-author the Rosetta Stone of B2B sales, 2011's The Challenger Sale, before following it up with the Babelfish of B2B customers with 2015's The Challenger Customer, a book which aims to help you uncover the hidden influencer that can multiply your results. Well, unfortunately, it does need an update because I've heard all the influencers are on TikTok these days. Hi, Brent. How are you tonight? I'm good, Jason. It's great to talk to you. It's good to have you here. And I'm looking forward to challenging a few things tonight. But before <laughs> we start, I do have to call out that I did interview your co-author, co-conspirator, and either the Batman to your Robin or the Robin to your Batman, Matt Dixon, recently. And I'm going to be very desperately trying to avoid duplicating effort. But if I do ask you any of the same questions, you can assume it's a... I don't know, a Mr. and Mrs. style attempt to make sure you're telling the same story. So perfect. Don't feel too offended. All good. But first things first, this is definitely not going to be the same. Let's find out about you. These days, you're the global head of research and communities at Ecosystems. So what problem does or do Ecosystems solve for its customers? So Ecosystems is a, well, just like every other company in the world these days, is a software as a service platform. Uh, It is Exactly, right? So, So I joined Eco about four months ago. Ecosystems provides customers a software platform, which they can then use in turn with their customers in order to sit down collaboratively and identify the dimensions of value along which they want to measure a relationship, all the way from top of the funnel down through sales into implementation, renewal, and expansion. So it's a think of it as almost like an operating system for value, Jason. If you wanted to, oh, I know, right? It's it's we actually work it's ex- in advertising. It's extremely, well, I kind of do. I write words for a living, but it's extremely <laughs> cool software that basically helps whoever in your commercial organization have a better value-based conversation and build a value-based relationship with their customer. Well, there you go. I'm sold. But how does that fit in then with some of the other tools that sales teams might be looking at? So obviously there's Salesforce and equivalent. There's stuff like Gong, which we use at work. But yep. is it kind of covering any of the use cases that you'd normally do through one of those? Or is it very much a complementary offering? It's complimentary. It certainly all fits together. So it's, you know, it's fully integrated and all that kind of stuff you'd want to know about, or maybe you don't want to know about, but some do. But the, <laughs> uh, the you know, it's actually, if I could, just there's, there's actually this really interesting discipline in the commercial organization, which I'm relatively new to, but it's been around for about 20 years called value engineering or value management. And there's whole functions built around value. Yeah. It, you can trace this, most of its legacy back to Oracle and SAP. There's now like this SAP diaspora of value executives around <laughs> the world. And that's where our company got it started. It was the company that helped SAP all those years ago build that software system that eventually then became their internal system and 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 our product. Yeah. 
And I, I think what's interesting about that, Jason, is that, you know, it's funny because I've talked to heads of sales every day for the last 20 years. I, I've got, you know, I, I talked to a vast number of commercial leaders in sales and marketing. And very few, if any of them, have ever said, you know what we need, Brent? We need a value engineering platform. But when I look <laughs> at what ecosystem does around hypothesis-led discovery, around you know, sequence of events building, around uh, you know, total cost of ownership calculations, all that kind of stuff, that's exactly what they're asking for is how do I... Yeah. If you're if you're a um, customer, particularly in a, re, in a in a recurring revenue model, given where we are today, if your customer is going to go have a hard conversation with their CFO about your product and whether or not it's justifiable or not, you want to make sure that both you and your customer are prepared to have that conversation. So that's that's where we live. Now that sounds good, and we're going to come back to the value stuff in a bit. Yep, probably a bit sounds dismissive good. to call it stuff, but you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean. It's all good, you know man. what you know what I mean. Yeah. But what does the global head of research and communities at ecosystems do? Like, so what's your day-to-day job? I mean, I can understand the words research and communities and maybe guess a little bit, but, but specifically, yeah. what do you do? I build communities and conduct research. So, so the, uh, all, <laughs> Next all question. Joking, right, exactly. All joking aside, but the, uh, so in, uh, at ecosystems.us, which is our website, and um, soon to change over to IO, by the way, .io for those non-Americans oh, who are like, it's not cool, I know. But the, we've actually... Prior to my arrival, and then since then, have built out a, a community of over a thousand professionals, commercial professionals involved in value. So I, I'm working on building that out, uh, making it more robust, more interactive, putting my content to it, you name it. And then, really, at the end of the day, because I know you want to talk about this a little bit. Funny enough, although I've been writing about sales and professional selling and marketing for the better part of 20 years, I'm not a professional seller. I have I've I've been in a bazillion sales calls. I've sat there and watched the close. I've done the close myself, but I've never actually had a quota. Uh, which to me is the oh, ultimate definition go. of it, right? Because you're not old Gil. Yeah, I, so we'll come back to that. But you know, the uh, <laughs> but what I am is I'm a researcher. And for, prior to, yeah, as you mentioned, prior to joining CEB, which became corporate corporate executive board, which became CEB, which became Gartner, which I, where I departed a couple months ago, I was an academic prior to that. So I was uh, trained yeah. in, in linguistics and social sciences, and so that's a 30 year career of just taking really big, hairy, complex problems and trying to understand them as best I can and best we can with, with colleagues and then writing about them, teaching about them, presenting about them. And that's, that's kind of where the red thread lies for me. So I'll continue to do that now at Eco. It's just that the, the target changes a little bit around value, but let's face it, the heart and soul of sales and marketing is value. So it's kind of the same stuff. No, absolutely. And it's really interesting, I think, and I chat to Matt about this too, the fact that neither of you, like you both yeah. contributed to the one of the desk references for B2B sales, but neither of you have been that kind of person sitting at the end of the phone, sort of the cigarette, the big ashtray full of cigarettes, desperately trying to close <laughs> that last sale, which is, I, I think this is you know, what I said to him as well, is like, it's really interesting because there could be a kind of certain lack of, for, for want of a better word, credibility like with yeah. some of those types of people when you're sitting there saying, hey, sales folk, do this. And they're like, well, you know, screw you. You know, you didn't, you've never done this for a living, but have you managed to kind of, burst that bubble or, or overcome that objection or did it never really come up? It would come up, but I certainly wouldn't I wouldn't create a situation where it would like force it to come up, right? So for example, I don't put my <laughs> PhD on my title. I, I don't call myself Dr. Adamson or Brent Adamson, you know, comma PhD. <laughs> I just park all that because it just raises questions that can get distracting. I'm not, by the way, I'm, I'm not trying to hide it nor am I embarrassed by it at all, but the, uh, I just don't want it to become a distraction. But but I, yeah. I think there's it's a longer conversation than maybe we have time for today, but Jason, but there is a First of all, there's room for both. So that person who is a head of sales or a sales professional for 20, 30 years writing about their experience and the, the nitty gritty, the way we work as researchers, Matt and I have always, you know, we talk to hundreds and hundreds of salespeople and sales leaders yeah. and then bring to that a, a rigor around research methodology. 
And I think there's just room for both. And I think most people ultimately do. There, there is this broad sort of section of society today and in our mutual countries that is dismissive of anything scientific in general. <laughs> that's more troubling, frankly. Yeah. In fact, that's quite troubling. But that's that's not something I've run into much in the sales profession per se. Which, with a few, I've been selling for thirty years. Get out of my way. Let me show you how it's done. There's a little bit of that, but I find we can usually square that circle pretty quickly. Yeah, it's interesting actually. There are a lot of parallels with product management. So the world yeah. that I spend my day today in, which is around like we don't have to be the expert in the industry, we don't have to be the customer ourselves. Our job is to go out there and synthesize the best of all of that, and then bring that back and build a proper business case and. That's right. Proper product strategy and all of that good stuff. So it feels like there's a lot of parallels there. And I think we probably, like you say, we could have a lot longer discussion about all the ins and outs of that. But it comes down to, I think, for all of us in your world, mine, to storytelling and really good storytelling, right? So how can I take all these different inputs, whether it's research-based, quantitative, qualitative, just anecdotal, and put it together in a way that's compelling, that makes sense, that's defensible, and then it gets people excited about it and moving in a certain direction. And I think Whatever profession anyone's in, that's one's ability to tell compelling, defensible stories is an incredibly powerful skill. No, absolutely. And it obviously touches on the book topic as well. And I guess yeah, one question that I should ask, and obviously given that you've written now these two books, which are very, very well regarded within the B2B sales community, but as we said, you've not been a salesman yourself. Yeah. Why did you decide at the beginning of all this, that it was a good area to get into, given your academic background and given the fact that you'd not been on the phones, been on the job yourself. Yeah. Like, was there any particular thing that attracted you to sales? Was it just an interesting area or was there some other kind of trigger for that? Oh, uh, no, it was even more arbitrary than that. It was pure, pure luck or a kismet <laughs> or just like a lining of planets. So, so again, I was, I was a professor. I was halfway to tenure at Michigan State in German and linguistics. Uh, went and got, uh, for long story again, park it ultimately chose to move out of <laughs> academics, but I went and got an MBA at the University of Michigan, did that in night school, teaching during the day at Michigan State. For the American listeners, they'll know why that's problematic. The two hate each other. <laughs> but in any case, then I, in going through the recruiting process coming out of the business school at Michigan, lo and behold, there's this company called Corporate Executive Board. They were looking for researchers. And I thought, well, that's perfect. I'm a researcher. So one thing led to another. And there's, there's the heart soul of the question, the answer to your question though, Jason, is it just so happens that the research opening that they had at that quarter was in sales. Yep. So in other words, I interviewed like for three different research positions and I could have been an L&D guy. I could have been a supply chain guy. It turns out I happened to wind up being a sales guy. Isn't that wild? So that's, there it is. That is incredible. And I'm just imagining yeah. all the other books and all the other branches of the multiverse that there could be out there right now. But, <laughs> but, we're, but we're, never really thought about it. But it's great. The multiverse has all sorts of challenger supply chainer <laughs> guide and, and all sorts of crazy stuff. The yeah. challenger procurement. <laughs> That's right. There's definitely something there. I'm going to copyright that and register the domain afterwards as well. Right. So you co-wrote The Challenger Sale with Matt, as we said. Yeah. But I've spoken to him about that already. So let's talk about The Challenger Customer, which is another book that you okay. wrote with Matt as well. But there's one... Really interesting thing that I spotted when I was looking at both of those books. You know, I mean, I've got the Challenger Sale behind me as I, as I showed you, but yep. I've only got an ebook of the Challenger Customer. But I did notice that on the Challenger Sale, it's Matt then you, yeah, and on the Challenger Customer, it's you then Matt. Now that calls to mind some of the stories I've read about Steve McQueen and Paul Newman on the Towering Inferno poster, where they were both battling for top spot. So was it kind of almost like a, you can have one, I can have the other, or is one of them his book and one of them really your book? No. In fact, I would say neither of them are my book or his book. What, what they really are 
is, and if no one reads acknowledgements, I know, but it was nonetheless important to us that we acknowledge in the acknowledgements, the broader team that was really instrumental in producing all this work. Yeah, There easily could have been two more authors, if not three more on the cover of the Challenger sale. The um, publisher back then when we were young and naive said, you should only have two authors. So we <laughs> took them off and I regret it to this day because they never got their full credit, Karen Freeman and Tamir Hitchelmas. But the, and then by the time the second one came around, the first one was so successful, they kind of let us do whatever we wanted. It's a, it's a personal, it's not an, actually, there's nothing deep or dark about it. Matt was one notch above me in the hierarchy and ran the sales practice when, when we read the first one. <laughs> so he said, I think I'll put my name first. And I wasn't going to argue with him. But then the second one rolled around, he had moved out of sales and into the financial services practice. I was leading the charge on the second book along with Nick Toman and Pat Spinner. And I said, hey, Matt, why don't we just flip the order? And he said, that's totally fine. But it was, it was you know, we're good friends and we get along great. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's not, it's a non-story, but that's what happened. Yeah, no, it's yeah. always good to you know, yeah. go, look behind the headlines. But I guess it really then calls into question, like who was the Batman and who was the Robin? But, you know, <laughs> it sounds like you were both just different Batmen. So that's, that's uh, right. Yes, we're bat people. <laughs> bat people, bat folk. <laughs> bat folk, I like it. <laughs> but the Challenger customer, yeah as we said, was a follow-up for the Challenger sale. So I guess that then, yeah, if we talk about the Challenger sale very, very briefly and sort yeah. of talk about the fact that it was a book that really shook the world of B2B sales up and kind of busted a few myths about like what the most effective type of salesperson was, the behaviors that they undertook and the way that they got to the sale. Yeah. So we don't need to go into all of that again. But yeah, I guess the question is, why then did you feel the need to write a book a sequel, a follow-up book, The Challenger Customer, talking about how to get those advocates within a company. Like, What made you decide to write that book? And I guess, by extension, what story were you trying to tell? Well, there, there's, there's, we just had a lot more to say, first of all. So there was questions that came out of the first one, particularly around insight. And what is the nature of insight? How do I construct this insight? How do I deploy? It's a lot of really tactical questions, which we we left unanswered, not on purpose, because we weren't sure either. So we, we learned a, a lot. In fact, we learned a ton between the first and the second. So we wanted to capture that. But I think more importantly, and, and we knew that actually shortly after the second one, we sat on that second book for a while because what I, I felt pretty strongly is we needed a protagonist. And it was when we found this idea of this, what we called the mobilizer is the, is the protagonist yeah. of the second story, the challenger customer, as it were, that it made sense to actually write a book. The other thing though, Jason, I would tell you, in some ways, I think actually for what it's worth, Matt agrees with me. The second book is the better book yep. because it's richer. There's more going on. There's more depth and texture to it. And it's a book written for marketers as much as it's written for salespeople. But I think the most important thing on the second book, The Challenger Customer, is that it, was, it, it marked a change in our research focus from selling to buying. That is continuing today. So Yep. So when I think of all the work that I was involved in at CB and then Gartner subsequently, that where we rolled out ideas like buyer enablement and sense making, uh, which are all uh, both have been published in HBR as well since then, is that really the bigger story? And I think this is true for all of us in sales. The bigger story in sales in the last ten years is not how selling has changed, but how buying has changed. Yeah. And I think in the last five years in particular, it's about how buying has not only changed, but how customers are struggling to buy in the first place or struggling to decide, which of course is the subject of Matt's new book, The Jolt Effect, that's just coming out. Yeah. So I think that's, if you want to kind of trace the lineage of like all of the work that I've been involved, that Matt's been involved in the last 10, 12 years around buying, it all traces back to the Challenger customer as a first foray into to that world. Yeah, it's really interesting looking at the book again and trying to sort of pull out some key facts. And yeah, one of the things I found really interesting was this idea, and I don't know if the number still holds or if it's got even worse, but it takes like 5.4 people 
yeah. within an organization to make a purchase decision. And those 5.4 people are 57% through the process before they even speak to suppliers in the first place. So there's a big education piece that they, they're kind of doing on their own. That's right. To a large That's extent. Right. Yeah. So, you know, that 5.4 is we, we uh, hammered that number for about the better part of three years when that book came out. It, it almost became like branded, like 5.4 TM or something, trademark, right? <laughs> and then, of course, then we continued to research. And every, every year in our research, the number would go up. It would go to 6.8. And then it went to 7 point something, which told me like, never again will I ever try and brand a number or a research result. <laughs> but the, you know, now we've reported, at least when I departed Gartner in May, we were reporting it as a range just because at some point yeah. the numbers were going up so high, so fast. Our chief of research, a guy named Eric Braun, used to say, you can't report that number. It's just no one's going to believe it. And it was like 12 <laughs> or 13 or 14. And so we, we felt hesitant to put the number on a slide. Plus, it wasn't apples to apples with the original set of questions. So there's some technical stuff there. But so we re- usually report it as like 5 to 11 or 5 to 10 or 6 to 11, something like that. But invariably, what I hear, Jason, is no matter how high I go with the number, someone will tell me, oh, that's not high enough, right? It's just, <laughs> I don't know about you. I'm actually at Eco right now. I'm involved in a sale where I think I personally have talked to 15, 20 different people already. And then, you know, oh, wow. it's just part of a, and it's just to get a pilot off the ground, right? But that's kind of where we are today. But that's something that then, if you think about some of the sales methodologies like MedPick and stuff, where you're yeah. trying to work out the economic buyer, try and work out who's the decision maker, who do I go to, who's got the budget, who's going to sign this off. Yeah. A lot of the challenger customers talking about really starting a bit downstream of that person and trying to basically find someone that you have ready access to, someone who's basically be pretty talkative and let you know what their problems are, someone that's going to be very open-minded and want to be educated. Yeah. Was that like a controversial thing to be suggesting to people that are being conditioned to try and find that top of the tree person that has the money in the wallet? Yeah. So when, when the book first came out, you'll remember, so, you know, MedPick and my sense, and my, by the way, this is, if it's unfair to MedPick, I apologize to the MedPick users out there, but I see this as sort of a, I warmed over sounds really, I won't say warmed oh, over. This is, I, this is good. This but is I just said, I, I, guess I, just, I guess I just said warmed over, didn't I? But it feels like, it feels like Bant 2.0, right? It feels like it's, it's, it's like this year is Bant, which is budget authority need and time. Yep. And it's very similar to that at the very least. I think we can all fairly say that. And in many ways, challenge your customer, this idea of what's called a mobilizer and, and all the work that went around it was very much a reaction to Bant because there's actually a chapter on the cutting room floor of the challenger customer. It was a little too complex and the data was a little, it was just complicated. So we ultimately took it out of the story to streamline it. But we, we were doing yeah. a lot of work back then around the difference between what we called emerging demand and established demand. And established demand is simply your customer knows exactly what they want. They invite you in to be column fodder, right? So you're in the bake-off <laughs> and you're only there to compete on price. And this is a bad place to be. Yep. And the argument, part of the argument back then was, look, if you can actually establish clear bant for that opportunity. So this person definitely has budget. The person I'm talking about has the authority to pull the trigger. They have a clear need that they can articulate and they want to do this in a short amount of time. I guarantee you that's established demand. That is, that is a recipe for you being in a bake-off and competing on price. Yeah. And what we were interested in is this idea of emerging demand or, 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 or you know, getting f- essentially further up funnel. How do I catch a customer or in the challenger world, create a customer that is only just beginning to realize I need to do something different or differently? Because if I can catch them at that point where I need, I, I need to do something different, I, I can begin to shape their thinking. I can begin to influence the direction they go in such that by the time they get to the point where they know, quote unquote, exactly what they want, it's all been deeply influenced by me. 
And you could do that later too and come into the bake off and say, I know this is what you asked for, but here's what you really need. It's just that's super disruptive. And it's it's and you could get you thrown out of a meeting very quickly doing that. So so that's where whether it's, you know, and again, there's parts of MedPick or Medic and all the others where it, it has it often to me has this flavor of established demand that troubles me sometimes. And I it'd be fun <laughs> to have a steel cage match with we, you know, where we debate this, you know, with with another with someone who deeply believes in it. I, I would imagine we'd find common ground, but that is the yeah. question I'd have for that person. Yeah, no, there's definitely an interesting one there. And I don't want to start stoking the holy wars, but you know, at the same <laughs> time, maybe I should stoke the holy wars. It's always Why not? It's always it's good, good for the numbers, right? Exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> well, good radio in this case. But do you need to have read the challenger sale to get the most out of the follow-up? And I guess by extension, do you need to be a challenger type salesperson to build challenger customers? Or is it completely different and separate? They they can build on it's like Lego blocks, right? So they can build on each other, but you can read them independently. So the challenger customer, we by the way, the thing we call the challenger customer in the book itself, we call the mobilizer. Yeah. We call it the challenger customer on the cover because the publisher asked us to kind of keep the two together and <laughs> they thought it would sell more books. They also promise us that there's no way that a sequel ever sells as much as the original, and they were they were correct. And that's all <laughs> so that's that's totally fine too. But the story in, in Challenger Customer is really about who inside the are, are all stakeholders of so this five point four or six point or whatever you know the twelve people I got to talk to inside the customer are they all created equal? That's first of all, and the answer is no. They're not all created equal. Some of them are far more valuable to others, and and the ones that are valuable to you aren't necessarily the most. They're not the things we all were trained to do, right? So yeah, we were trained to find the person who is senior most decision maker, budget owner, certain box in the org chart. And what's interesting in this book, well, I won't unpack the whole book, but when we went out and studied <laughs> this, we found out the star performers didn't care about any of those things. Yeah. What they cared about was finding someone who's good at two things, driving change and building consensus. And that makes a ton of sense. And we explore that a lot in the book, the idea that at the end, they were all kind of selling the same thing, aren't we, Jason? We're selling change. I want you to yeah. stop buying this and start buying that. Stop buying from them, start buying from us. You know, Stop doing it yourself, outsource it to us. Stop doing on-prem, do it in the cloud. One or another, we're all trying to sell change. And so I need to find someone inside the organization who will embrace that change and then be good at building consensus around that change. And those people are actually kind of hard to find and they don't fit necessarily the description you think they would. And so the challenger customers, that entire journey. And so you could take the whole challenger sale and park it over here yeah. and just look at this idea of mobilizers. I think you'd find it, one would find it to be super valuable. I think it's super interesting though, because I've certainly met people in the past that are potentially mobilizers within organizations yeah. sometimes they may also be the decision maker as well which is a, yeah. a nice little mix but yeah sometimes they're just someone and that's just in the company doing stuff i guess the tricky part is when you're trying to sell to the mobilizer which probably you know you basically spend quite a lot of time sort of talking in circles because they've actually got no authority to make the sale yeah but on the other side if you're talking to this kind of i don't know some kind of maverick within some organization that's kind of coming in as a change agent of some sort and that they're also the mobilizer they do have the budget, but actually you get almost like a full sense of product market fit in a sense because they're just there spending some kind of discretionary funds on something that might or might not work, but they just want to make a splash. Like, is that a danger when you're talking to some of these people? Yeah, it can be. There's all sorts of dangers when you talk to. So there's there's also what we call a climber, which we are able to isolate in our research. A climber is someone <laughs> that was like, kind of what it sounds like is that they're the whiffing person what's in it for me so they they will climb over top of anyone to get to where they're going <laughs> and what's interesting not only can you recognize them but their colleagues recognize them for that too so when your name gets associated with a climber inside the customer organization as someone said to me once their stink rubs off on you it's like 
Oh, this guy's talking <laughs> to Jason. Don't talk to Jason because Brent's talking to uh, Jason, right? I've so, heard worse. <laughs> right. So what's as if I see one of the things that we found about Mobilizer, I think is so interesting because every time I share that, many times when I share the Mobilizer work with people, they'll say, oh, you mean a customer champion? You need to find a champion. It's like, no, nah, actually, well, no, because uh, that's actually a different concept. And that's a more traditional concept, again, that we've been trained to find. Find someone who can essentially take your flag and run through the, you know, figuratively run through the <laughs> halls of the customer organization, waving your flag and being your champion. That's not what a mobilizer is. A mobilizer isn't mobilizing for you. A mobilizer is mobilizing for change. Yeah. So what you need to do is give them an idea, an insight. This is where it does tie back to Challenger, by the way. An insight that is specific to their organization, not about your product or your benefits or your brand or your whatever it is. It's a, an insight about their company and how they can make money, save money, mitigate risk in ways they haven't fully appreciated and get them excited to make that change and then attach yourself to that insight such that yeah. if they're going to achieve the best of that insight, they're going to have to go with you. That's that, Again, that's kind of classic challengers that your insight leads to you, not with you. But I think that's a really interesting way to think about how you prioritize your stakeholder engagements inside the customer organization is who's going to gravitate to this insight that leads to our solution and who's best equipped to get the rest of the company rallied around that, to mobilize around the idea as opposed to rally around our solution. Yeah, no, it's, again, a really big area that we could talk about for hours, yeah. no doubt, but it's definitely yeah. an interesting challenge to solve. But speaking of solving it and taking a long time to do so, I mean, a lot of what we're talking around here in the case of like education and mobilizing people, as you say, around yeah. change and trying to persuade them that there's a problem that they didn't know that they had yet. Again, very challenging to sell in itself. Yeah. But this idea that you've got to change the frame so that someone is there and they maybe think something or that they're starting to investigate something or teach themselves something that they didn't know before. But that sounds like it's going to take quite a while in some cases, depending on the level of change and the level of disruption that you're introducing or the size of the problem that you're trying to get them to get into their head. Yeah. And it starts to sound a bit almost like some of the work you might have to do when you're even creating like a new category in marketing terms. Like you're sitting there trying to persuade someone that something that they didn't know existed before yeah. now exists and they've got to think about it. Yeah. Now, in marketing, you can sort of sit there and say, well, fine, you know, that's a marketing thing. They can go and do that, be part of their general plan. In sales, what we're talking about is a generally an organization which is as you sort of touched on earlier with quotas, you know, they live by the sword, they die by the sword, they've got to close business every quarter, otherwise they might get sacked. How does this kind of long game play with sales? Or is it not the sales team that does it? No, it, it, should, well, it should be, and it can be. And uh, But I think you land on a couple of points that I think are really critical here. So that's one of the reasons why the Challenger customer is written as much for marketers as it is for sales, because it's got to be a game that you play through the entire funnel, right? So, so insight starts with, you know, Demand gen starts with insight, getting your customers to think differently about what they're doing about their business, qualifying on their receptivity to that, that insight, identifying a mobilizer as you go. So by the time you inherit them in sales, certainly you can start challenging at that point. And of course, many sales professionals all over the world do that every single day, but it can slow things down. We used to say this all the time, which is the more disruptive your insight, the more powerful it can be, but also the more it can mess everything up. It's like when the customer realizes like, <laughs> oh, we're thinking about this completely wrong. We got to go all the way back to the beginning and think about it all over. It's like, the last, that's the last thing I want to do. So yeah. so there's right-sizing your insight for disruptiveness is something to consider. There's also using this as a qualifying metric with your customers. Like if they are not open to that kind of rethinking, it's not that they are necessarily a bad customer, but they may not be a high margin customer because you're going to wind up just going, you're back in the world of established demand yeah. and competing on price then. I think but I think that's the critical thing here is, is figuring out 
how to right size your challenge and finding the right person to to move. Oh, and then here's another point because this will segue into where you want to go next. Anyway, I think Jason is um you you kind of implied it earlier. Let's say you found this person who's a potentially good mobilizer. They they latch onto then insight. They're really excited. They are willing to go build consensus or at least work to get consensus and uh, among their colleagues. But just because someone is willing to challenge or mobilize, I should say, just because someone's willing to mobilize doesn't mean they're necessarily able to mobilize. And this is where yeah. I think in many ways, all of our work since then has happened. And this is how you speed up the funnel is it's something we, we at Gartner, we, we dubbed this idea of, uh, we called it buyer enablement. But buyer enablement essentially is, is based on the presumption that maybe your customer doesn't actually know how to buy not just your solution, but a solution like yours. Who do I get involved in this? Yeah. Some of some of them remember we drew a diagram of a typical buyer's journey at, at Gartner, and it looked like I called it the bowl of spaghetti. It was just arrows and paragraphs, <laughs> and just like just going on. There was four buying jobs, which is problem identification, solution exploration, requirements building, supplier selection. And you think if you mapped a typical buyer journey, it would just be you know one, two, three, four. It'd be a straight line across those. But in fact, when you really map it out, you know based on what happens in reality, it's two steps forward, one step back three steps forward, one step back, then another step back, then you know you get the idea. So there's arrows and it's just a mess, right? Yeah. And so here's the here's where I think it gets really interesting. When you when we in sales look at the complexity of the decision making process among our customers, we tend to lament it, say, oh man, this is awful. I gotta figure out how to get them, you know, and so how do I slog through this? How do I how do I even track this? So what we do is we'll sit down, we're trained to sit down with our customers and say, here's a blank piece of paper. Could you just map out how this is going to work out? Who needs to get involved again? So we we tend to lean on the customer to coach us through their purchase. Yeah. When in fact, more often than not, when a deal goes wrong these days, so the customer, you're like, it's like it's black hole in your pipeline. It's somewhere in gosh knows where in the, in the metaverse or the like, right? <laughs> and it's it's crashed and burned. The customers disappeared. And then finally, they call you back up and, it's, you know, like you forecast it from a month ago and it's still stuck. And they call you up and they'll start, Jason, they'll, they'll start the conversation with a phrase like, it turns out that. <laughs> and and I, I always joke, like any sales conversation starts with the phrase, it turns out that is like a relationship conversation starts out with the phrase, we need to talk, you know, nothing good happens after that, right? So the, uh, but it's always interesting. It's like, it, well, it turns out that our procurement department needed to look this over. It turns out that our legal department wanted to have a final check on, and they've oh, got some questions. Go. It turns out we just hired a new compliance officer and they want to look. But, but here's what's interesting to me is virtually every time your customer says it turns out that, they're surprised. They didn't see that coming. Yeah. And yet your reaction in sales is like, oh God, here we go again. Like, this is the <laughs> one where legal gets involved. And if you flip that on its head and really think about what's going on there, well, your customer may be getting stuck in these challenges for the very first time. You've already seen it happen multiple times because you've sold similar deals to other people or crashed and burned in similar ways in the past. Yep. So let's turn that into our advantage. What if we then be- took that as our assignment, our role? So so when we find that mobilizer, even if we don't find the mobilizer, what if our role in sales is to effectively take the customer by the hand, virtually, <laughs> figuratively, and guide <laughs> them through their buying journey? So you know what? When we're in working with other customers like you, as my I use that phrase all the time, in working with other customers like you, we find that procurement almost always gets involved, but it tends to get overlooked and they, they usually get involved late. When they do, they blow things up. We'd encourage you to Get them involved early. And when you do, here's the three questions they're going to ask. And here's how you want to answer them. Make sure you can continue to move forward. We've already built the PowerPoint deck that you need to have that conversation. That's buyer enabled. And I think that that's where so much of our work has gone since. And it's less about frame breaking, which is all challenger. And I still stand by it, of course. Yeah. 
But this is much more about frame making. How can I create a framework for my customers around decision making? And there's a there's several other frameworks, one around value, one around uh, implementation, one around information. But I think these ideas of creating, help, just basically chalking the pitch or chalking the field for your customer and just helping them. Just instead of asking, how do I get them to buy? Ask, how do I help them to decide? How do I simplify the decision-making process? How do I simplify the massive amount of information they're consuming? How do I simplify the value calculation? How do I simplify the journey to implementation? Those are different frameworks, a framework of deciding, a framework for learning, a framework for value, and a framework for implementation that I think could be really critical for any seller trying to move a deal forward today. No, absolutely. And that's obviously a lot of the frame making stuff that you yourself refer to as the single biggest commercial opportunity today. Like, that's a bold claim. So do you genuinely think that if people crack this, that they're going to unlock deals that were nowhere near being unlocked before? Or do you think that it's more of an incremental thing that they can do? I do. Um, uh, yeah, I, I tend to talk in big, bold strokes, I realize, in the half for years. <laughs> it comes from my old teaching days when I had to teach undergraduate you know, 19-year-olds who were either drunk or hungover from the night before and didn't want to be there. So I just... But in any case, the, <laughs> so here's, I think, when I say it's the biggest commercial opportunity, what I mean by that, the word I, that's implicit in there is the biggest incremental opportunity. Yeah. In other words, you know, we want to compete on our product. That's, and that's why there's so many product-led growth companies out there today. It's really hard to compete solely on product because you wind up in a features and benefits war. So, and this was the case in the late 1990s to 2000. You know, a lot of very well-known big Fortune 500 companies were realizing it became very difficult to compete on products alone with fast followers and easy copycats, things like that. So there was a broad move in the early 2000s towards what was called solution selling. So I'm not going to sell an individual product. I'm going to sell a broader solution. I'm going to stitch together capabilities from M&A activity. Yep. or organic growth and say, I've got the product, I've got the service, I've got the wraparounds. That then ran its course about 2010. And it's still out there today. By the way, people are still competing on products today. People are still competing on, on solutions today. <laughs> but if you think about sort of like, um, I don't know, like FedEx and UPS, so like one started with planes, one started with trucks, and they grew their, their solutions accreted in scope to the point where they're going head to head across all capabilities. And so they're, they've got world-class solutions that are still commoditized. So the window of differentiation for product was closing. The window for differentiation of solutions was closing. That's right when Challenger hit 2010, when we argued, uh, suggested that maybe the next big opportunity for differentiation isn't so much what you sell, but how you sell. It was insight, which then got picked up in the broader ether in parallel around this idea of thought leadership. And if we could just be thought leaders and demonstrate to our customers we're the smartest people in the world, they'll come to us first. That led to the marketing automation, what it lead to, but it was accompanied by marketing automation and, and marketing content marketing as a strategy. I call this the smartness arms race. So 2010 to 2020, <laughs> everybody decided to get really, really smart and spam the world with really deep insight, whether it was challenger or not. And so where we are today is now customers, you know, the, the smartness arms race has ended in a tie. So in other words, being really, I, I would not suggest anyone they should unilaterally disarm and just go out and say dumb things, right? <laughs> but being really, really smart, even being really, really insightful today, just as table stakes. And I think this is yeah. what's so interesting about B2B is the bar for differentiation keeps moving. So when I say the single biggest opportunity today, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm really getting at is, I think if you really want to stand out today, you know, if you ask yourself, so where's the next big opportunity to differentiate? If it's not product, if it's not solution, if it's not insight, what is it? I think it's, for now at least, it's help. It's your ability to help your customers frame their thinking so that they can feel more confident in the decisions that they're making on behalf of their company. No, absolutely. 
that was a 30 year lesson in history of sales. There you go. In, in like five minutes. This yeah. is the gold. This is the gold <laughs> that people come to this podcast for. There you go. But if I think about who does all this stuff, obviously the sales team yeah. are in there, the marketing team are in there, the company leadership are going to be in there probably somewhere, all hopefully in sync with each other and marching to the same drum. Yeah. But how can the product team, the product development team, the wider team of designers and developers and the product managers that are basically responsible for building all of the stuff that the salespeople are hopefully going to go out and sell, how can we help with this frame making or indeed any of the challenger stuff in general? Well, the, just to be really, really provocative, I, I wrote an article that HBR picked up on their digital site and put it on their website back in January of 2022. It's called, Are Sales and Marketing Becoming Obsolete? I think is the, or, or, or maybe there was actually, I think it was Sales and Marketing Are Becoming. It wasn't a question. I think it was a statement. Sales and Marketing Are Becoming Obsolete. I didn't write the title for what it's worth, but, but I don't, uh, I, stand, that old yeah, I, st- well, I stand by it. So I'll, I'll take credit. <laughs> I won't take credit for writing the title, but I'll take credit for the sentiment. But not just me, but again, this is one of the last things I worked on at Gartner with a bunch of others is that I think the best companies today, Jason, and this, by the way, to all credit to Matt and his new book, The Jolt Effect, it's, it's picking up on this exact same body of work, the same theme, at least I should say, which is in a world where customers are overwhelmed with the complexity of their own decision-making process and too much information and opaque value and, and doubtful implementation success, that the single biggest thing that we can do in this world is try to help our customers feel more confident in the decisions that they're making on behalf of their company. And I think that's when I put it all together. I think that's, to me, what gets really interesting is because then, then you can start asking, well, are our legacy structural silos, organizational silos, sales, marketing, success, service, even this value function I didn't know existed until four months ago, <laughs> are they really perfect? Or product, to your question, are they in fact properly positioned to make that happen? And I think the better thing to do, which is really, really hard, and that's why most people reject this outright without even engaging in it, is I think in an ideal world, in the abstract, I'd start with a clean sheet of paper. This is, by the way, this is what like you can tell where like researcher in me versus sales leader in me comes out <laughs> because I can talk in the abstract like this as a researcher, right? Yeah. But what if we were to start with a clean sheet of paper and say, there is no sales, there is no marketing, there is no product. There's just an organization that's got a set of capabilities that's trying to get customers to embrace. Then I think what we would do is we would back solve for what are the jobs that customers are trying to complete to their satisfaction, which is all part of the jobs to be done approach from yep. Clay Christensen and Bob Mesta. Uh, Mesta, by the way, is M-O-E-S-T-A, Bob Mesta. Yeah, I'm trying to get his, him on the podcast as he's, well. He's brilliant. He's such a great guy. By the way, Bob Mesta, as a quick footnote, when you're driving your car and you need to get, you need to get gas or whatever you might call it, there's a little arrow next to the <laughs> gas gauge saying which side of the car you need to tank up on. Yep. Bob Mesta invented that arrow. That's, oh, there you go. That, that is oh, the no. single most genius invention ever by human beings. Well, at least hope it's he, top five. Uh, hope he patented it. I hope he did it. too. Yes, uh, certainly. I, yeah, but in any case, so this idea of jobs to be done is what if we were to identify the five or six jobs that have to be completed to customer satisfaction? And then we organized our company around job teams. So here's the team that helps our customers complete that job. Here's the, comp- here's the part of our team that helps our customers complete that job. And this actually exists. So that's this article that I mentioned. It's the only reason I plugged it because people might be interested in like, well, okay, that sounds super hypothetical because you're a researcher, <laughs> right? But actually, this is happening at a company called Smart Technologies up in Canada. It's, a, it's an ed tech or educational technology company. They're brilliant. Jeff and Jenna are the head of marketing and the head of sales, respectively, who are no longer the head of marketing and head of sales because they don't have sales and marketing. They have what they call the unified commercial engine. And that the article is a story of what they've built and they've been building. And I just talked to Jeff last week and it's going gangbusters. That means it's going well. It's going really strong. <laughs> and they wouldn't go back in, at all. 
And what I think is Jason is so interesting about that story is when people hear what Smart's doing, it's either I can't do that because we're small and they're big. And then some people say, I can't do that because we're big and they're small. I can't do that because they're in tech. Like, the number of reasons that people have found to not be able to do what Smart is doing is stunning. The only one that I will buy is I can't do that because they're Canadian. That's the only one that I believe because there's something about being Canadian that means you trust each other more and you can do crazy stuff like that. But, but I think that's... So the, the, the answer to the product team, I think, is the answer to everyone, which is how can we look at our organization? Maybe we don't have to blow it all up and restructure everything because that's incredibly disruptive. Yeah. But how can we collectively and individually think about what are the jobs that customers have to complete to their satisfaction and what is my role in solving for customers' confidence in their ability to complete that job? That, that, that one lens may change everything you do radically. It may just change things around the margins, but that's the right lens to apply, I would argue, today. Oh, absolutely. And that sounds like productive disruption through and through. So you're living up to your desires there. <laughs> but what's next for you? Are you sticking to the day job now? I guess you only just started it, so you probably should for a bit. But is that your main plan for now? Or you got another book in the offing or some other research uh, you need to do? I'll do, I'll do a bunch of research for Eco uh, Ecosystems, my company that I'm with now. And in fact, I've already published a couple of smaller pieces and, and a nice framework, what we call a blueprint for a value-based commercial uh, operating system. It's very cool. Find that on our website. There may be another book someday. I, I, there's also a little bit of side gigging, some, you know, some sales kickoffs and some keynotes that I'm doing on the side. But mostly my heart and soul now belongs to taking this company called Ecosystems, which I truly believe is doing some amazing work and creating an operating system that's based on value for a commercial. So if you're going to do anything like I talked about with smart technology, or even if you don't do it, at the very least, if you can't restructure the organization, can you at least have a software solution that serves as the proxy for that one structure? And that's what Ecosystems does. So there's nothing but opportunity for us to think about sharing that story with the world and, and building research around it. So that's my, that's my, main, my main gig for, uh, for the foreseeable future. Got the sneaking suspicion I was being sold to there, like you're trying to turn me into a challenger customer. I don't know what you're own. talking about, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> so you have got it. You, you stub that cigarette out, you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> but where can people find you after this then if they want to find out more about ecosystems, about frame making, challenger yeah. salespeople or customers, or maybe even try and practice their German? Uh, maybe, yeah. What about this? Can we uh, the, uh, the, <laughs> so you still got it. I sell a little bit, not as much. It's it's, it's rusty. I got to tell you. So, um, the I'm on LinkedIn. It's probably the easiest way to find me. You find the company at ecosystems.us, and you can also find more information about the the customer value community, the CVC there as well. Or just send me a note, follow me on, or you know, send a connection over on LinkedIn, and um, I'll follow back, and we'll um, we'll connect there. Uh, super. Well, I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes, and hopefully, you'll get some keen interest and some challenges heading to your direction well that's been a fantastic chat so obviously really glad you could find some time in your busy schedule to help us all sell our b2b products a bit more easily and challenge our sales teams and customers hopefully we stay in touch but yeah as for now thanks for taking the time thanks so much jason cheers as always thanks for listening i hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful if you did again i can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com check out some of my other fantastic guests sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again i'll be back soon with another inspiring guest but as for now thanks and good night